Hi, good morning, Missio. My name is Jessica, and today's reading is Acts 19, verses 23 through 41. I'm reading out of the NIV version, the riot in Ephesus. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen and related trades, and said, Men, you know we have received a good income from this business, and you see and hear this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent up a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized it, he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal, in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, welcome, everybody. I'm Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, it's good to have you. If you're watching online, it's a weird thing to say, but uh, it's good to have you watching there as well. Uh, If you are new and you want to get more connected, and maybe you're like, I don't know that I want to talk to somebody right now, or like that feels like a little bit too close, or I just want to, I don't have time. If you go to our website and you do missioslc.com slash connect, there's a way to get connected, to fill out a form, um, and somebody will email you if that feels more comfortable. Cool. All right, we are in a series right now called The Missio Day. And as we've said every week, that's our namesake but it is also a theological idea, a concept that we believe about God and that we believe about us. And and very simply, it's this, that we believe God is on a mission. That God is on a mission ahead of us, around us, in the midst of us. That God is doing something in the world around us way before we've gotten here and will be doing it way after we're gone. And that's a simple idea, yet it is world-altering to believe that ahead of us, God is moving. Around us, God is moving. In us, God is moving. 
And so the question that we've been trying to answer is, okay, so we believe this thing about God. We believe that God is doing something in the world around us, that there is like a percolating new world coming into existence or like some kind of fermentation that the Spirit of God is bringing in the world. And so the question we're asking is, well, what does that mean for us? And yes, what does that mean for like the global church and what does that mean for like the capital C church? But more specifically, what does it mean for Missio Day in Salt Lake City? What does it mean for us in this room? If God is on mission, what does it mean for us here and now to join the mission of God in the midst of us? And what we've said is that God is on a mission to change the world, and the way that God changes the world is through the restoration of God's presence to a people. So the first thing that we need to know is that the way God is moving is by restoring presence in us who are then present to the world around us. And we do that, we're present to the world around us through these practices that God has given us. Practices that are actually very simple and sometimes very normal and even mundane in a way. Practices like gathering around the table, welcoming people into our home, being welcomed into other people's homes. Practices that are normal, normal, regular, almost like ritualistic realities of human life. And yet it is in those normal, mundane, regular spaces that God promises to enter. When we do those practices, we've said that it is like tending to the presence of God, that we are here where God is in our midst, and God is ahead of us, around us, on mission. And so tending is kind of like the merger of those two spaces. Where through these practices, we open up space where we and others get to experience the presence of God. So when we gather at a table, with our friends and our family and our coworkers, and we work hard to be attentive to those with us. God says, I'm present. And in your presence to them, I am present. And in their presence to you, I am present. And you are meeting me and experiencing me and having an encounter with the living God in this strange, normal breaking of bread. And when you are welcomed into someone's home and they are willing to be surprised by what God is doing in the midst of you, then God is with you and you are encountering the living God. And when you allow someone else into your life, a willingness to be surprised about who they are despite the way you might define them, then God says, I am with you. When we practice gathering or welcoming, God promises to be with us. So we've been exploring these practices, practices of tending. We've done gathering, we've done welcoming. Last week we did exploring, which is the work of humbly paying attention to God, self, and others in and around us. Today, we're going to talk about the practice of create. The practice of creation. And let's just define it right at the beginning. The practice of creation is this. Joining God together in our abilities and passions to extend God's presence into the local through what we make. We'll break down each of these subsequent parts, but I'm going to read it again. Joining God together in our abilities and passions to extend God's presence into the local through what we make. 
In some ways, you could say that the practice of creation is really the very first thing that human beings are called to. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God has just created the world, just filled it with beauty and life and abundance, and it is overflowing a good place called home. And this is what God says in verse 26, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things. So God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and master it. We have been created in the image of our creator God. We have been created in the image of our creator God, like our creator God, tasked with participating with God. Like little tiny creators, we have been made, called to join the thing that God is doing around us. What does God do? Oh, well in this moment, out of the divine community, which we'll talk about in a second, God creates spaces of God's presence. What is the world more than anything else except a home for God to be with God's people? It is a place where the presence of God meets God's people. And so to be creators, to be people made in the image of God is to do the same, to see that God is creating spaces of God's presence where we encounter God. And so then we're called to do the same thing, to create little spaces of God's presence where we and others get to encounter God. Theologian uh, Richard Middleton, who's a specialist in Genesis 1, describes it very simply like this. He says, to be an image bearer is this, extending in some way God's rule on earth or God's presence through ordinary communal practices of human sociocultural life. I love this definition because it is so big that it fits all the things that we bring to it. I think sometimes when we hear the word create, like we just have a lot of assumptions that come with that idea. And so maybe the first thing that you think is you're like, oh, creating means making art, which it totally does. But that is not the only thing that God has in mind when he calls us image bearers. Creation also looks like families or businesses dinner parties and baked goods for neighbors and better HR structures at your job. It looks like whatever it is that you can imagine that merges together your abilities, your community, and the presence of God, which is why it's hard to give examples because it is bigger than I can possibly describe. Creation looks like the overflow of your abilities and passions, who God made you to be, merging with your community and the mission of God around you. In this way, you could say that it kind of flows from the other practices that we've talked about. Right? As we gather and as we welcome and as we explore together, we said last week that things will begin to emerge, like there'll be these discoveries that will begin to emerge. We'll begin to see what it is that God is doing. We'll begin to discover who we are and how God has made us as it's reflected back to us in our community. We'll discover who we're with and what they bring to the equation and we'll see needs and heartbreak and trauma and opportunities and creation is that moment where we meet those needs out of the discoveries that have been made. 
Creation is that joining of our abilities, our passions, the community that we're in with the mission of God around us. And just as much as it flows from the practices, you could also say that creation is a disruptive practice. Because creation has a direct impact on the, as the quote from Richard Middleton says, a socio-cultural impact on the world around us. Maybe more than any other practice, this one directly challenges the world. I think in some ways we saw this in 2020, in, even in this most recent election. They say that it has some of the highest voter turnout, maybe ever. And where did that voter turnout come from? Well, mostly grassroots organizing, which you could say in some ways is an overflow of the practice of creation, that something is happening on the ground, overflowing, and doing this thing that has a direct impact on the world around us. One of my favorite examples of the practices of creation is this farm that was started in 1942 called Koinonia Farm in Georgia. And it was begun primarily by a guy named Clarence Jordan, who was a civil rights leader. And he decided that we wanted to create what he called a demonstration plot of the kingdom. So they begin a farm, and white and black families come to live together in actual mutuality. This is the middle of Georgia in 1942. It is not a friendly place to try to practice true racial reconciliation and mutuality. So they begin to practice this new way of life, but this new way of life, of farming together, of living together, of practicing mutuality, it is so disruptive and so challenging to the world around them that regularly Koinonia Farm is bombed, shot, boycotted, This small demonstration plot that would be like, what impact can this little gesture have is so disruptive and such an affront to the way that the world works that people enact violence against it to close it. This is what happens when we practice the work of creation in a world that has a different model, a different imagination for what should be created. This is what we see in Acts chapter 19. We see that whatever is happening in the early church is so disruptive to the life of the Ephesians that it is causing genuine economic downfall. So much so that this person named Demetrius, who's a silversmith, gathers the people together to to begin to rally them against the Christian way because this business is suffering. How wild is that? When was the last time, just like genuine question, when was the last time in your own neighborhood so many people became followers of Jesus that a business closed? I, like, I just have no, almost like no imagination for that happening. I don't know that I've ever seen something so dramatic that so many people become followers of Jesus that there is not enough money to support what was once lucrative. And as it would be, like that's very upsetting to the business leaders of Ephesus. And so Demetrius gathers them together and he says this. He called them all together along with the workers and related fields and trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and particularly in the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. 
There is danger in this, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great god of Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. People become followers of Jesus. It disrupts what's happening in Ephesus, so much so that he has a business leaders association meeting to rally everyone together to figure out what to do about these new followers of Jesus. And in this moment, I think we learn something so important about what the practice of creation is. Because here's the thing. Anybody can engage in the practice of creation. We're all made in the image of God regardless of of how we make or what we make or what we do, we are all made in the image of God. Those gifts are beyond reproach. This is why the world is full of so much beautiful and wonderful things. Why it is no surprise that people who are not followers of Jesus make things that are magnificent. We are all made in the image of God, but we do make what we worship. We make what we worship. What we worship, the gods that we have, determine the things that we create. In this text, the god that is named is Artemis. But each of us have our own gods that shape the kinds of things we make. Profit, security, comfort, significance. Those things begin to shape the projects that we invest in, the way that we build the families that we love. And I want to show you three primary ways that the God that we worship shapes the way that we make. First, we see it in verse 25. Artemis, or Demetrius says this to all of those silversmiths in Artemis. He says, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. So Demetrius has gathered all of these people together and he appeals to his friends. And the theme of that appeal is this, profit and pragmatics. The gods that we worship determine whether our relationships are pragmatic or if they are mutual. Here's what I mean. When the... Gods that we worship are profit or significance or meaning or whatever it is, then the relationships that we have become pawns or pragmatic pieces that we get to wield in order to achieve the end of our worship. So if our gods are profit, people become pawns to help us achieve our financial goals. If our God is significant, then people, often our lovers or our spouses, become pawns to help us achieve our vision of life. If our hope and goal is security, then people become pawns to give us a sense of security. And Now, we would never say that, but I do think the easiest way to see it in our own life is when people stop performing that role well. Because very quickly, pawns become threats when we don't get what we want. And I know this in my own life. I can think about it all the time with my wife, Tori, that hypothetically, I am worshiping a different God than significance, but I know so regularly that I put on her expectations of giving me this like certain kind of sense of life, and when she doesn't do it, she becomes a threat to what it is that I want in life. 
All of a sudden, it is like I find myself undermining her or like rewriting her narrative somehow that she's like a villain in the story of my existence. That's not true. But the gods that we worship determine that the people around us are either pawns we use pragmatically or if we engage with the people around us mutually. See, pragmatics are antithetical to the God of the Bible whose very nature is communal. We believe fundamentally as Christians that that God is perfect community. It says in Genesis 1, God creates out of community. He says, let us create. So it is out of this perfect community that all the things God does flows. God is community. God's very nature is constituted or defined by community. And the Greek word that we often use to describe this kind of community is perichoresis, which is actually best translated to mutuality. Meaning that within the relationship that is God, there is this mutuality, this constant giving and receiving. Ancient theologians used to describe it as a dance because they were like, what other image do we have to like evoke this kind of movement where one person steps and the other person moves intuitively and then one person steps and the other person moves intuitively. There's this giving and receiving, this mutual submission, this creating space and then receiving space that moves perfectly within the community that is God. And this matters because we were created in the image of a communal God. We were created in the image of a communal God whose perfect nature is community. And so that means our nature is communal. That we are not isolated alone or individualistic beings. And in fact, when we begin to think that about ourselves, we have actually wandered away from God's good design. That we are built to be communal, defined and constituted by the other. Now, practically, think about it like this. I, as a pastor, only exist in community. Right? I'm not a pastor if there's not a community. Not a husband if there's not a wife. I can use that title all I want to, but it's weird. But what if I'm not even a human unless there's another human? What if I can't create unless there are people to create with, that I am constituted, that I am formed, that I am shaped, that I am defined in community? This is what it means to be made in the image of God. That our relationships are not pragmatic, they're not practical, they're not tools, they're not pawns, they're not things that we use for some other purpose. They are who we are because we are defined and created in the image of a communal God to be communal. These relationships are essential to who we are. So that's the first thing that we learn. What you worship determines how you see your relationships. Are they pragmatic tools to be used for some other end, or are you communal? Second, do you see the world through terms of scarcity or abundance? Verse 27 
in that conversation that Demetrius is having. He says, There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Demetrius is afraid that there will be no more money to the trade that he's engaging in, that there will be no more worship of Artemis, even that this god can be robbed of her divine majesty. That's what we'll call scarcity. The belief that there are limits to the good things that we want or need in this life. Limits to money, limits to opportunities, limits to love, to connection, to depth, to significance. And if there really are limits, if there really are scarce limits to the economy of the world around us, well, then it only makes sense that we would engage it like Demetrius does, fight and whore to get our own, build reserves, large barns full of all the love and wealth and significance that we could possibly need because there's limits and so it will run out. So we fight and hoard and steal and manipulate and exploit to get what is ours. Because scarcity engenders fear and anxiety. In my own life, anxiety manifests as this need to do. That if I can just do enough, then I can control the outcomes. The problem is that when you create out of anxiety, you create anxiety. Right? When you create out of anxiety, you create anxiety. If I am afraid that there are limits to how much my friends will love me, well, then I will work very hard to try to secure the love that I receive from my friends. I'll give presents, and I'll send weird text messages, and then I'll feel anxious about those text messages I sent, so I'll send another one trying to cover that one up, and then I will not sleep at night. I just might have done this recently. Right, out of anxiety, we make more anxiety. We're trying to control, we're trying to manage, but instead, we've just invested further into this scarce economy and it is shaping our minds and our hearts, and so we just keep doubling down on it. We've all been at a dinner table with a friend or a parent or a loved one who, out of their anxiety, is trying to gather us together to save the family. You know the difference between that moment and a moment where it is overflowing with love and abundance. Not to say that it can't be both. Sometimes it is both. But you know the difference. You know the difference. The issue is that creation is at its very nature intended to be a generous practice. But scarcity is the enemy of generosity. And it doesn't mean that we don't give when we're in the midst of scarcity. We do, but we give to control. We give to manage. We give to deal with our own issues. And that is the opposite of the way that our God works. Our God is generous fundamentally because our God lives in an abundant universe. Our God is abundant. God has no lack, no limits, no needs. The community that God exists within is overflowing with abundant love. There's no insecurity. There is no doubt. There is no mistrust. It is perfect, abundant, communal existence. 
And because God is abundant, God creates out of abundance, not out of need, but as an extension of God's self, a generous gift to the world around. It's not a creation out of anxiety, but a creation out of love. The gods that we worship determine whether or not we live in scarcity or abundance. And when we live out of abundance, well, we create out of abundance. We create out of restfulness, out of peace, out of a sense of self and others. And we feel the difference. The third, the God we worship determines whether we are absent or present. So what happens is the scarcity and pragmatics of Demetrius' worship, it leads to this anger and resentment and disregard and even violence at the end of this passage. It says, when the crowds heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristocrus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. It says the assembly was in confusion. Some people were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Sound familiar? Literally it says that they just shouted for two hours when someone tried to talk to them. And there's different ways that you could describe this, but I think the thing that is happening most in this moment is that this riot is what happens when there is no presence. When no one is present to one another, when no one is present to themselves, and when no one is present to God. And that's what happens when there is so much anxiety and scarcity. Because the way that anxiety flexes in this world, or at least in most of our lives, is that anxiety tries to exert control, which means that we are always trying to manage variables trying to manage the future, trying to manage what's going to happen over here, trying to manage what happened in the past and the things that I feel shame for, the things that I'm afraid of, or what might happen over here. It's always trying to manage variables. But when we spend our lives managing variables, we are not paying attention to what's happening right now. We can't. You literally can't pay attention to what's happening in the moment when all you're thinking about is the future or what's next or what's behind you. In that, I cannot tell you there's, there's a more deadly equation than pragmatics, scarcity, and absence. It's what happens in this moment. A riot occurs because there is pragmatic relationships, scarcity, and absence. And that's what happens when we build friendships that never see one another that always feel like we're taking and taking and never actually seen. It's how we build businesses that exploit workers and the environment. It's pragmatics, scarcity, and absence. It's how we create marriages that ignore spouses. That is pragmatics, scarcity, and absence. It's how we build institutions that violate the law, that exploit neighborhoods, that use the world. It is pragmatics and scarcity and absence. And there is nothing more anathema to the thing that God is doing than absence. Because God always moves through communal 
presence in and around us. That's the theme of this series that God is with, that God renews through presence. And Missio, the thing that we are invited to be as the church, out of the deep abundance and communal relations that we have, we are invited to be deeply present. To pay attention, to see, to be seen, and to know. And in being attentive to receive and extend God's presence to the world around us. This is what is possible when we create out of communal abundance. And this is so desperately what our world needs. It's what our friendships need. It's what our marriages need, our churches need, our dinner parties need, our neighborhoods need, our businesses need. They need us to be deeply present because of the abundance of our God. This is the thing, I think, that disrupted the idol worship of Ephesus. And I think it is the only thing that can disrupt the idol worship of 21st century America. We've spent so much time, right, in 2020, 2019, really the last five years, we've been spending time asking, what does the church do in light of the world around us? And I don't mean to be oversimplistic, but this is the answer to that question. Out of a deep sense of connection to one another, out of an abundant imagination, we participate with God in making things that extend God's presence in the world around us. And in doing so, we offer something that is helpful and healing to our hearts and to the hearts of the neighborhood and the local and the world around us. This is what our world needs. And honestly, I think this is what I need and what you need. I'm tired of the anxiety and the scarcity of our world. I'm tired of living there. I'm tired of trying to create out of that. It is too much for me. The gods of this world demand too much and offer too little in return. So, Missio, today, if you feel that, if that resonates with you, then I just have one question. What God do you worship? Because the God that you worship determines the things you make. Determines whether your relationships are pragmatic or mutual. Whether you live in scarcity or abundance. Or whether you are absent or present. Would you bring that question with you to the table? All around you are little vessels for communion. We can't gather in the same way. But when we do this practice of gathering at the table... What we're remembering and what we're practicing is that we have been invited into this thing that God is talking about. We have been invited into mutuality where all of us are at the table together, sitting as equals. And where we have to learn to give and take and receive and make space for the other at the table, just as God has made space for us. As we gather and practice at the table, even with these weird little plasticky cups and wafers, we remember that God is abundant in a way this little cup is not. (laughs) 
Remember that we celebrate every single week the wedding feast of the Lamb that is a a celebration of the reconciliation of all things, the abundance of all things, that God is bigger and above and always victorious. And as we break open this little cup, we practice presence. God promised to be here with us this table, at the tables in our home, and even at the tables in the homes of those around us. So, Missio, bring that question with you. What God do you worship? And then I invite you to continue worshiping. Let's pray. Jesus, I think more than anything else, the thing I ask Because the thing I think I desperately need is a different imagination and heart and belief about the world around us. It is so easy for me to create out of the anxiety of the world, out of imaginations of scarcity. In fact, I think that's my default is to do that. And so today, God, as we hear your story, and as we sing your song, as we take communion together at the table, and as we do these practices, would you just evoke in us a deeper sense of the abundance of you, the trustworthiness of you, the presence of you, that that gives us a different worldview, a different paradigm, a different way of being in this place. It's not easy to gain that sense of something. So today, would you just give us a little taste so we might leave here a people who create with you so that other people also might have a little taste. God, in your name we pray. Amen. Missio, we invite you to continue worshiping.